Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of The Other Hand. Today, it's just me. Jim is sunning himself on a beach somewhere in Portugal, I think. And I have a, a very special guest, somebody that's been on the podcast a few times over the course of the last while, Professor Shane O'Mara, neuroscientist from Trinity College, Dublin, celebrated author. His most recent book, Talking Heads, is getting rave reviews all around the place, as indeed been reviewed by us and thoroughly recommended, as have many other of his work. So great to see you again, Shane. Thanks so much for, for coming back to the podcast. How's things? Things are good. I have a mild head cold, but it's thankfully lifting it. Uh, so apart from that, teaching term is underway. Life is good. Great. As always, your output is astonishing. Given that you're also teaching, I don't know where you get the time to write. I'm supposed to, to be semi-retired, and I don't get time to do half the things I want to do. And you're working full-time, so I'm very envious. But there are at least two, if not three, of your most recent pieces on your Substack, Brain Pizza, which, again, comes thoroughly recommended by myself and Jim. Please take a look at it. One thing that was of obvious interest to me uh, and Jim, I know, uh, was your, a piece that you wrote about Joe Biden. Now, I know that you make a, a habit of steering clear of political discussions. You don't think that there's much value to be added there in these kinds of discussions. You are a neuroscientist, after all. But this was a crossover into your field, this particular issue. For readers that perhaps didn't pay too much attention to the news flow over the last couple of weeks, an absolute furore was launched in the United States when the results of a special prosecutor that was appointed by the Department of Justice to look into Joe Biden's affairs of one kind or another, allegations of one kind or another, 
And this special prosecutor produced his report in recent days in which he said, I'm not going to bother because Joe Biden is, and I'm paraphrasing here the exact words I'm sure Shane is more familiar with than I, but essentially the special prosecutor concluded because he's a, a bit of an old duffer, an old man who's clearly in decline cognitively, mentally, I don't think it's worth prosecuting him. And he brought proceedings to an end. Now, of course, that played straight into all of the supporters of Joe Biden who have fears that he is in decline. Lots of people in his own party are worried about his what is generally regarded as his obvious decline, whether that's a physical decline, a mental decline, whether it's more apparent than real. I'll get into, into with Shane in a minute. But it is notable that members of his own party, if you read the New York Times, the House Journal of the Democratic Party, they worry all the time about his decline. If you look at the opinion polls about whether people in Joe Biden's own party, whether they want him to run again, the overwhelming majority of people, for one reason or another, whether it's because of worries about cognitive, physical or other forms of decline, or just that he's too old, which might be a catch-all expression for meaning the same thing, the majority of people don't want Joe Biden to run. To be politically balanced, it is also the case that the majority of people in the United States don't want Donald Trump to run either. They want a presidential election between two, two other candidates, presumably two younger candidates. But anyway, you called your blog post, most recent one, uh, your Substack piece, uh, Brain Pizza, Shane, Dementia and Joe Biden. And presumably that was obviously prompted by this furore that was unleashed by the special prosecutor's report. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And it's also uh, just a coincidence that as this all broke, I've been teaching about Alzheimer's disease and dementia and uh, discussing with my students the latest work in the area. I was really struck by the furore guarding Biden, Uh, like the, the, the quote from her's report described him as, quote, a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. It doesn't take long for people to start shouting dementia uh, regarding Biden. And this is a really a, a kind of a serious charge, but it's one disconnected from what we know about brain aging, memory in aging, the topic of, of super aging, which uh, I advert to a little bit in the, in the piece. Yeah, super aging is something I'm, I'm particularly interested in. As somebody that's reaching a certain age myself, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the concept and I want to know more. And I suspect plenty of people like me would, would like to know more about that and what we can do to, to, to encourage it. But before we get into Biden specifically and whether or not he is demented or not, and whether these things can be diagnosed remotely or by lawyers or both, um, we all have a, a, a real visceral fear of dementia because it is such, uh, at least in some of its forms, a terrible, terrible disease. And of course, the first thing to say is, is it's not one disease. It's it, There are many different types. Are there... Well, first of all, Jane, how many types are there? And secondly, are there some types of dementia that are better to get than others? Let's deal with the the first question first. How many types? There are probably six or seven or eight or 10, depending on your classification scheme. But the big one is Alzheimer's disease. And this accounts for about two thirds of cases. And uh, Parkinsonian related dementia comes along a second. And then there are other types of, of dementia. There's posterior cortical atrophy, where you get uh, loss of tissue in the back of the brain. You get something called frontotemporal dementia, 
where you get loss of tissue in the frontal lobes and in the temporal lobes, which are beside the temples. You get vascular dementias. So these are very common in smokers where the blood vessels narrow all over the brain because of smoking and you get uh, a thinning of, of, of brain tissue all over the brain as, as a result of that. But the, the big one, I think, is, is Alzheimer's disease. There are, as I've said, about two thirds of cases are uh, Alzheimer in nature. Now, is there one that's better to get than the other? I, I, I don't think that's a reasonable question, to be honest. <laughs> um, I, I don't know how one would go about answering that because uh, sometimes these things are comorbid. So you might, end, you might have posterior cortical atrophy and you might have Parkinson's disease. They're not clean, as it were. Like the, the motivation for the question, of course, is, as with the all things medical, inevitably becomes personal. And yeah. um, we, we've all had one way or another personal experience of these diseases. My, my own mother, her mother, a next door neighbor I once knew. The neighbor was a particularly awful story in that it, this particular person got some form of dementia or, or, or other. I'm not sure what the diagnosis was quite early on in life at 55 and uh, experienced, you know, a long and quite awful decline. Uh, my mother and her mother got it later. And being able to distinguish between these different types of dementia and the behaviors and the, and the, the, what, what ends up, how people end up, it, it, it strikes me is that they're all awful. And, and my, my, my own sense to, the own, to my own question was that I agree with you, it's not a sensible question because it, they're all terrible diseases, aren't they? Yes, they are. And the, the, the problem with them all is that they're progressive. It's not a once-off event. Alzheimer's disease, to, the, you know, to, to take the, the poster child that we're talking about, the very earliest changes in the brain might happen uh, as early as the early 50s, but the ma- sort of clinical manifestation of that might take 15 or 20 or more years to, to kind of come to a, a, its uh, a clinical presentation. So this is a disease with a very long run-in and a very long run out because uh, with Alzheimer's, you can live for 20 years with that condition. Uh, other conditions, uh, you may uh, live a much, uh, a much shorter life depending on, on the manifestation of the particular condition. So this is genuinely a, a kind of a, a big problem that we're going to have to face. And I, I, I say this because the numbers, and you, you were talking about it in, in the last few days in your own Uh, interview with uh, Eamon Dunphy, our pension systems are going to have a big problem because the numbers of people who are surviving into late life has gone up dramatically. So the suspicion is that uh, there will be 2 billion people on the planet who will be 60 or older within about 20 years. That's not very far away. You know, there's a lot of complaints about aging leaders. The the other point that I make in, in the piece is that we're going to have aging leaders uh, because the planet is aging. So the ageism that's around this topic has to die. It's self-defeating. And what we really need to be thinking about is, is the integrity of processes around selection and ensuring that uh, we understand what's ahead of us. And it, it, it's, it's hard to understand, of course, 20 years time. But the demography, assuming nothing else changes, you know, another terrible pandemic, is pointing in a single direction. And I think we should celebrate this. You know, this dramatic extension in, in life expectancy over the last 100 years is just amazing. You know, 1900, you might have got to 50 or 60, and now you can reasonably expect to get to your mid-80s. And if we take the right public health steps, we can ensure that you'll get there and age well. One of the interesting things about that, there are many interesting things about that, that uh, if you if you think about it in terms of 
its correlation with economic development is that there are a certain where economic growth is one of those things that is very tough to achieve as the UK is finding out through its cost at the moment but we know broadly speaking what you have to do to get it and it's a bit like the health thing no matter what sort of health outcome you're looking for um, old age living to a ripe old age encapsulates that is that the, the list of things that you should do is often the same whatever the condition is you know walk a lot talk a lot have a good diet, don't smoke, don't drink too much, preferably don't drink at all. Um, all these sorts of things seem to, to, to not guarantee a good health outcome. And it's similar with economies that uh, if you do a certain list of things, pursue a, tick all the right boxes, pursue a menu of choices, you will get some economic growth, some economic development. And it's really interesting that just as some people won't pursue those choices of not smoking, eating a balanced diet, walking, exercising, all of it. Some countries don't pursue the the choices. And so you do see some countries in parts of the world that almost refuse to develop economically. And so it is with, and it's correlated, and it's in these kinds of countries where life expectancy is at its lowest, because you've talked about us here in our kinds of countries that with a bit of luck and those choices made, we will live into our 80s uh, or indeed longer. Um, there are still plenty of countries in the world where that life expectancy is half that, Shane, and we do not make those choices. It's very interesting behaviorally at the macro level why countries choose not to grow and um, why at the individual level we, we, in a way, and I know this is pushing it too hard, we choose choose not to live a a long and, and healthy life. But And of course, one of the things that always comes up at this point is is the the grandmother who lived until she was 98 died in her sleep with all her faculties intact and smoked and drank all her life which of course always proves nothing i actually had that grandmother i had i had a 98 year old grandmother who died in her sleep and i arrived at her care home she was a little bit frail but mentally she was absolutely fine and i had 200 benson and hedges and a bottle of bells whiskey in the bag as her standard present and, she, and she'd had that death that we all wish for ourselves, that she had died, died in her sleep, absolutely fine. So anyway, that, that's, sorry, that's a very personal story. And I know, although I use that story sometimes, I know that proves statistically absolutely nothing. On the statistics of life expectancy, there are always nuances, there are always subtleties, and I'm sure you know far more about them than I do. But one of the reasons, of course, that we are living, uh, people the population is aging is because there are more people living for longer because we are healthier and there have been medical advances dietary advances and healthier living advances but the reason why population another reason an additional reason why the population is aging is that infant mortality has collapsed in a lot of our countries and so one of the reasons why average life expectancy 100 years ago was much lower than it is now is that far more babies died and children under five died. So there are lots of drivers of this, but you're absolutely right. Um, our pension systems, our health systems are going to be under increasing strain in a relatively short period of time because there are just going to be more more old people around for one reason or another. Although we talk about it a lot, I mean, if you pick up any financial newspaper, for example, the pension crisis, as you mentioned there, is talked about a lot, but that's just one aspect of this. But the, but the other aspect, which I suppose we're kind of sort of touching on here is that we're going to be living with a lot more demented people aren't we you see so that's a, a really good uh, kind of launching point for the next comment that i want to make they're kind of there, there's two things that i'll say 
there has been a general failure of drugs to treat Alzheimer's disease. So the, the first drug, which goes by the name of Dinepazil, was brought in in the, in the 70s. And uh, for 20 or more years or 30 or more years, uh, there really weren't any other approvals. Depending on whose estimate you look at, there have been at least 120 failed drug trials for Alzheimer's disease. And uh, in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of excitement around a new generation of drugs that are designed to clear a toxic product out of the brain, which is believed to cause Alzheimer's disease. This is controversial. It may not be actually doing that. The field may have gone a little bit astray where this is concerned. But um, a number of companies have put an awful lot of investment into this. Uh, Biogen being a, a particularly prominent one who, who'd spent 17 years on a on a, a drug which they finally uh, had to pull because uh, the efficacy was so low. So drug treatment is is uh, going to be problematic for years to come. And I think what we really have to do is is keep the research going because we, we do need to try and halt and if possible reverse uh, this condition because it, it robs people, uh, robs their families and robs the, the world of so much. What we now know is is there's a, it was a paper, I, I think quite a revolutionary paper published a couple of years ago in The Lancet, um, which I, I'll, I'll talk briefly about. The fundamental claim of this paper is that about 40% of cases of dementia can be prevented uh, by changing people's behavior. And what they've done is, is a massive trawl uh, through the literature to look at known risk factors for dementia. And there's a couple that fall out that are really, really striking. One, and this is reliably seen all over the world, the risk of dementia drops with the more years you spend in education. Um, so this is an early life intervention that has late life effects. So that the longer the period that you spend in the education, the less likely uh, it reduces the expected incidence of dementia by about 7%. So that's really quite stunning. Um, so that means that people who might have got it aren't getting it. Another one which is really important and has, has only been picked up on, I think, in really the last five years is hearing loss, uh, something completely out of left field. Uh, about 8% of cases can be prevented by screening measures for hearing loss in midlife. So th this is you know something that's cheap, it's easy to do when you get your eyes tested, you can get your ears tested. If you need to wear a, a device to augment your hearing, then that's uh, something that can be sorted out pretty easily. Can I interrupt you there, Shane? Yeah, absolutely. Which, which, and it'll lead into a, a broader discussion about observational studies and causal studies and all that kind of stuff if, if we get time. So if you observe somebody in midlife with hearing loss, and you're saying that's very important to, to for its own sake, but also because of the possible correlation with later in life cognitive decline. If you are that 50-something, say, person with hearing loss, in order to mitigate the risks of developing dementia, is there anything that they can do at 50-something? Yeah, literally go get your hearing tested once every two years or whatever. And uh, if it turns out that you need to wear a device to augment your hearing, well, then get the device. Now, and that uh, might help. The, the, and that the, might help. And, and the reason to think that this is, a, is, is, is actually reasonable is um, if you think, obviously, you don't know much about the anatomy of the inner ear, but uh, just, just think about the auditory canal for a moment. Uh, you can hear sounds when you're asleep. Uh, they waken you up. So there's what's known as a tonic input. Uh, there's an always-on input from the, the ear into the brain. 
And it's the loss of that input where you're getting continual driving activity into particular brain regions is thought to be at least a part of the problem. There's another related issue, and this has fallen out of the literature loads and loads of times, which is that people with hearing loss tend to be slightly less socially engaged because they find it hard to hear what's going on. And we know that social engagement, loneliness in particular, is a profound risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. And you can show this causally, in fact, by looking at brains that have equivalent burdens of disease and look at the degree of impairment those people had prior to death and look at the density of their social networks. In like-for-like brain comparisons, you've got the same amount of disease in in a lonely brain and and a, a social brain. And what you find is the functional impairment, the, the cognitive impairment, is lowered in the person with lots of social engagement compared to the person who doesn't. Loneliness in late life and loneliness in midlife is, and we're social animals, we have a, a huge social brain. We give over lots and lots of brain to understanding our social world. That disengagement from the social world is, is, is something, again, we can change, you know, the, they're, they're you know, simple things like meals and wheels, people, people turning up to say hello to you a couple of times a week, organizing walking groups. Uh, you know, there's loads and loads of simple things, simple community events that people can be part of. There are lots and lots of ways of, of, of uh, dealing with that. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We're going totally off-piste here, Shane, but one of the things that I've observed over the years, and only via TED Talks rather than learned journal articles, is something that I refer to as the Harvard study, which I'm quite sure that you're aware of. Yeah, yeah. And my very soundbite, tabloid, headline description of that study when I talk about it with other people is that you have these learned professors giving these TED Talks who say that when we follow cohorts of people all the way now, nearly for 100 years, graduating classes of Harvard University, ever-increasing levels of study, types of study, is that the, the one factor that seems to trump all others when it comes to life expectancy and also quality of life is social interaction. 
Yeah, it, it falls out every time. Humans' uh, great kind of kind of adaptation is our ability to talk to each other and understand each other and get along with each other, to deliberate together and to form very close, supportive personal relationships with each other. This is really, you know, when you ask what is it that's unique about humans, it, it really, you know, this is how we're different. Um, you know, we, we, we have these very, very intense social lives and the social brain undergoes a dramatic expansion in the teenage years in particular. People's ability to understand what it is that other people are thinking is augmented dramatically. And of course, teenagers start to suddenly care about their peers and what their peers might think about them in that age. So, you know, this is kind of goes by the name of social metacognition. You're thinking about what other people are thinking about you. No chimpanzee gives a damn about this. Uh, you know, we're, we're in a very, very different uh, position to other species. And it's because of this astonishing capacity for cooperativity. But it comes with this price that it's something that we have to maintain uh, right uh, uh, throughout life. I just again uh, speaking about causality. I just I just want to make a, another quick point. Uh, there's a, a quite depressing paper came out uh, in the Lancet uh, about two years ago. Uh, sorry, last November by Chen and colleagues. And what it does is look at the relationship between the incidence of dementia, higher education, and no education in England and Wales over the past or the, the twenty odd years prior to the publication of the paper. So what the, what they're doing is counting cases. Uh, of dementia that are reported into the system in the UK. And uh, they show two things that are really remarkable in this paper. One is that the numbers of cases of dementia fell in the UK from 2002 all the way down to about 2010, 2012. And then the numbers of cases started to rise again for reasons that aren't very well explained. It might be that, I don't want to speculate on the politics, but maybe there's been something about the public health system or something else that has gone on in the UK. But what they show in this paper, which is also remarkable, is that uh, when you divide the population into people who have had higher, higher education and those who have not, the numbers of cases in that higher education pool still remains very, very low relative to the rest of the, of the pool. So there's something uh, going on in the UK at present with regard to the incidence of dementia. Uh, it's not explained particularly well, but even at this level, uh, even though the incidence is rising, when you look at uh, people who've had higher education and those who have had not, the, the numbers of cases or the incidence is much, much greater multiples uh, in the, the people who've had lesser years of education. That's observational, I presume. It's very hard yeah, to so get a handle on what they're on doing what... is is tracking cases through time. It is, quote, only epidemiology. But what is remarkable about it is that this higher education effect falls out very, very cleanly from the data. That if you split the data by male and female, you don't get much of a change. You get a U-shaped curve for the incidence. It falls all the way through to 2010, 2012, 2014, and it starts to rise again. But then if you split it into years of education, those have had higher and those have had not. The higher education group stays low and the people who've had fewer years in education, they start to go back up again. Why that's the case, who knows? Um, well, wouldn't but, uh, it be lovely to to, under, to have a better understanding of, of the causal mechanisms here? Indeed, the causal mechanisms for, for many things, my own game, economics, is dominated by not dominated there's a lot of correlation 
and causation infirmed, inferred from causation. We have we we even use Latin to mock people that confuse correlation with causation. Right, causation, yeah. Post hoc ego propter hoc. Yeah, yeah. 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 we can. Yeah. We can something I, I always warn my students about. Mm. But um, when when you start to see data like this, especially the education data, the I think there's there's something really profound that uh, going on there that that replicates across countries. It, it, I don't think it's an artifact, and we can show in, uh, for example, if if uh, you you focus on on how how for example education might impact, what we know is the brain undergoes profound changes as a result of being educated. The neurons in your brain become much more interconnected with each other. Uh, we spend a long time teaching people to do something that's very difficult. Uh, so learning to read and write is hard. Learning to do arithmetic is uh, is hard. And we're training you to to sit and absorb knowledge for many hours a day, for many years at a time. So these are these are difficult cognitive skills, but also difficult to acquire non-cognitive skills because you're, you're teaching people, you know, things like grit or ability to stick with a task. And everywhere you look, when you, you look at the fraction of the population that, that succumbed to dementia and you plot it against years of education, you see this relation falling out. I think that, you know, there's good underlying physiological reasons to, to think that it has to do with the changes in, in the fundamental structure of the brain as a result of these long years uh, we spend teaching people uh, in education. Right. Joe Biden. Shane, yes. tell me about a lawyer's ability to diagnose cognitive decline. Yeah, it's 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 close to zero, I would think. Uh, and I, I I make the case that Joe probably played Robert Herr. Well, this is the other thing I wanted you to talk about. Do you think that uh, there may well have been a game played here by Biden because his metacognition skills are so so good? Yes. Uh, so I think there's a, a question that uh, you know again the, 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 there's a kind of a, a general prohibition on diagnosing people, the so-called gold, Goldwater rule. So. Just keeping that idea in mind, if we, if we think about Biden, what we're not seeing about him is lots of leaks saying that he's no good in cabinet meetings. We're not seeing jockeying for position for uh, when he inevitably collapses and goes over or whatever it is that the implications of the, the current conversation are. So I, I find that a disjunction there really quite remarkable that uh, there's no evidence that we're getting leaks from internally. And I don't believe that people are that good at not leaking. Uh, I think it's clearly the case that uh, he's he's on top of what he's doing. There's no doubt that he's aging, but he's always had a history of uh, flubbing. He's had a stutter, which he's had to uh, deal with all his life, which causes him to, to misspeak. I've seen clips of him from the 80s and, and before uh, where his gaffes uh, in speaking are, are very well known. And I, I assume this has something to do uh, with his stutter. The key thing where dementia is concerned is you have to demonstrate that there is a profound change in functioning relative to where the person was before. And that has not been demonstrated in his case. And to be fair, it hasn't been demonstrated in Donald Trump's case either. You look at the, the clinical criteria, what you have to show is a functional impairment. In other words, the person is not able to do their job uh, and that's palpable. And it has to be, uh, and also that they're failing in, in, in uh, the social domain and that these are significant changes from previous levels of functioning. 
that hasn't been demonstrated to my knowledge in the case of either of them. They, they're both elderly. There's no no point in pretending otherwise. Uh, Biden is 81 and Trump is 77. Uh, are they very elderly? I, I don't know. It depends what your definition is. I think 100 years ago, they would have been regarded as, as very elderly. Um, as we're all aging, I think that threshold is, is, is uh, sliding up. The other thing to say is memory slips as we get older are very, very common. You know, there's again, there's no point in pretending that. But memory is not the whole of your cognitive function. In fact, it may be the least interesting aspect of your cognitive function. If you're working in a context where you're very well supported by the individuals around you. In other words, the kind of abnormal changes, or sorry, normal change in, in memory where you might forget where you put your keys or you might have difficulty remembering who told you something or you might have you might mistake one person for another, you know, famously uh, Trump uh, mistook Pelosi and uh, Nikki Kelly recently, and he he's misnamed uh, Obama and Biden uh, on a couple of occasions. These kinds of things, I, you know, we can leap on as evidence of pathology, but I don't think we should. I, I think memory slips like this are perfectly common and uh, will happen with age. I did mention the issue of super aging, so I can talk about that a little if you'd like. Please, that that is very interesting to me. For personal reasons. Yeah. So the, uh, there's um, a really interesting literature, and you've hinted at it already, from these longitudinal studies, the, the Framingham study, the Harvard study, a whole lot of others. I, I should mention Tilda, the, the, the major work that my colleague, uh, uh, Roseanne Kenny, has been leading, uh, showing that there's a fraction of the population who age remarkably well. And the, the contrast I give in the, in the lecture that I do on this is between Bertrand Russell and Iris Murdoch. Uh, both won the Nobel Prize, both for literature. Russell, the great Welsh philosopher, died at 99 of, or 98 of pneumonia, having written 20 books in the, the last years of his life. Murdoch uh, died at, I think, 75 or 77 of dementia. And we, we focus on the dementia, but we don't focus so much on, on the superager. And Russell was a, was a superager. And what's clear uh, in the in the case of, of superaging is that general cognitive function uh, for these people is the same as people who are 20 or 30 years younger. So they show no discernible general decline in cognitive function. They may show memory slips. That's fine. But they, they, uh, they don't show any disproportionate number of memory slips. But their ability to think, their ability to manage others, all of those kinds of things remains intact. And what you have is a, is a really interesting phenomenon. If you if you imagine the kind of uh, difficult and unpleasant topic to talk about, but the, if you imagine the, the pathway to death and kind of disability on the way to death, what superagers do is maintain a level of function that's far above a disability threshold until the very, very last weeks of life when they go through what's known as a compression of morbidity. So they have uh, a, a lot of illness, uh, maybe pneumonia or other things, and uh, they die in a relatively short period of time. So they haven't had a long period of, of decline. They, they show a very rapid period of decline, but only in, in the last weeks or maybe perhaps uh, months of life. Now, uh, there, I've made the point already uh, regarding the, the kind of preventative measures that we can undertake. And you've mentioned causality, which I think is the really important and correct thing to have done. Can we do something to ensure that we are going to be more likely to be superagers? And the answer is yes. And do we have causal evidence for this? And the answer is yes. 
the, the, the most profound intervention that you can engage in is uh, to become physically and socially active. Uh, and by physically active in particular, to concentrate on aerobic status and uh, becoming aerobically fit. Why do I say this? I say this because in principle, and this is a really easy slogan for your listeners to remember, what's good for the heart is good for the brain. If your heart is in good working order, it's going to be bringing blood, nutrients, oxygen into the brain and sluicing waste products out in good order. So there's nothing hanging around that's going to kill brain tissue. And we can show, and this has been done many times, we've done some studies on this in, with my colleague Anya Kelly. Others have done the same. If you take people who are sedentary and you divide them in two, get one group to continue doing what they're doing, and you get another group to engage in a program of aerobic exercise. In, our, in, the, in the studies that we've done, we've used uh, exercise bicycles. In the case of other studies, they use uh, lots and lots of walking uh, or they, other things like this under the, the guidance of a physiotherapist. And consistently and persistently, what's found is the part of the brain that's most intimately implicated in memory, the hippocampal formation, undergoes uh, an increase in volume. It gets bigger in people who engage in physical exercise, aerobic exercise, compared to people who don't. And here's the kicker. It's a really, really good line or important thing to remember. Uh, memory function improves in those people relative to the sedentary controls and relative to their own baseline. So the intervention of getting lots of aerobic exercise works. Uh, and it's probably one of the most profound things you can do to enhance uh, obviously heart health, but brain health as you get older, because it impacts on um, the, the function of brain regions that are involved in memory. But it also helps with other things collaterally. So you're going to get your uh, blood pressure down. You're going to drop your risk of diabetes. You're probably, if you're out and about, you're going to reduce your risk of social isolation, uh, all of those kinds of things. And it, it, it also helps perhaps lower the risk for depression as well. So we have a kind of a top and tail solution i think in in one way we should be educating people because this is a a good thing for them their health behaviors tend to be better right throughout the course of life they're at lowered risk of dementia trying to build active societies where people do a lot more moving via shanks mayor uh, right throughout the course of life and this will have again very very positive effects on on uh, cognitive function and in the case of the superagers what you see is those people tend to be much more physically active. So I, I mentioned Bertrand Russell. He was a very active hill walker. He walked the hills of Wales. He walked the hills here in Ireland. Uh, he used to walk all over the place. In his, in his autobiography, he would, he would mention how he would uh, do 20 or 30 mile walks and then just uh, enjoy sitting in a chair, feeling pain uh, <laughs> afterwards and enjoy the lack of thought. Uh, <laughs> that, that that pain uh, would bring. We're running out of time as always, and there's so much more I would love to talk to you about, but we'll leave that till next time. To summarize our thoughts about cognition, aging, dementia, and Joe Biden is the first thing that we should do is don't try and diagnose anybody remotely. And that, Absolutely. Lawyer, that lawyer shouldn't have done it, and neither should we. And no, I, I no. get that message very, very strongly. Um, I also get a message that you, you have merely noted there that if Biden was becoming cognitively impaired, you'd have expected to see more public 
shall we say, quasi-evidence of this in the form of people saying things about his behavior, weird behavior in cabinet meetings and things like that. And you notice the absence of that evidence, which I think is important. And in a way, as a reminder about saying the same sort of thing is that when there's no evidence, stop doing the diagnosis. <laughs> and and the other, which is really taken from what you've said today, and also about a book that you've written, is go for a long walk. Yeah. Take lots of regular intermittent exercise right throughout the course of the day. Don't assume that an hour in the gym is going in the evening is going to cut it where uh, uh, sitting around all day is, is concerned. If you, if you look at all the studies of our metabolism, and there's been lots of studies that have been done on this, and I, I summarized some of them on, on, on my Substack over the years, people profit most from regular intermittent physical activity. So don't sit for three hours. Get up every half hour for a walk or every... Uh, hour, uh, do two, three, four minutes, whatever it happens to be, walk up the stairs, but just don't sit there all day. Get moving and get moving regularly. The other thing I, sh I should say is a, a common thing with aging, and it, this, this has been commented upon in the case of Biden, is frailty. Aerobic exercise is not going to protect you against frailty. Uh, so some program of, of lifting weights or resistance training uh, is very important as, as uh, you age because we naturally lose muscle mass unless the muscle is regularly challenged. You really do need, and that actually has all sorts of other benefits. Muscle is a stressor on bone, and bone responds to that stress <laughs> by strengthening up a bit. Uh, so giving yourself regular uh, weight training is, is a really good idea. So if you're sitting down at night, you know, keep a, a, a little grip strength trainer beside you, um, you know, there's no reason why you can't have a, a small set of hand weights and do a, a few bits of weights. There's, you know, lots of things that you can do that are active, positive interventions that will spill over into other aspects of your life. On that very positive note, Shane, once again, thank you so much for, for joining us on the other hand. That's Professor Shane O'Mara of Trinity College Dublin, author, substacker, uh, prolific uh, writer. We look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you, Shane. Thank you, Chris. I look forward to it as well. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 